Welcome to The World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues of the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the challenges we face and what society needs to do to help solve them. The war in Ukraine is entering its third year. There is ongoing fighting in Gaza. The US and UK have been carrying out airstrikes in response to attacks on cargo ships in the Red Sea and the killing of three soldiers in Jordan. Such levels of conflict around the world have prompted politicians and military leaders to warn we are moving from a post-war to a pre-war world and to suggest preparations are needed for a period of sustained conflict around the globe. Meanwhile, the United Nations has been highlighting the human cost of the current conflicts and urging the world to push for peace. My name is Julie Weldon, and in this episode, brought to you by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London, we're going to explore what the current conflicts tell us about the world today and ask what are the prospects for peace. We will be speaking with Dr. Marina Moron, a postdoctoral researcher in our Department of War Studies, about whether we really are in a time of increased conflict, and hear her thoughts on what lies behind the current fighting. We'll also discuss the prospects for peace, the role of NATO, and hear what she thinks we should be doing differently if we want a more peaceful future. Welcome, Dr. Moron, to the world we got this. We've lots to discuss, so let's get going with the first question. With the current war in Ukraine, fighting in Israel and Gaza and attacks in the Red Sea, many people feel as if we are in a time of increased conflict compared to recent years. Is this accurate? Well, that's a very interesting question because obviously we have all these conflicts now in the media. We have great coverage of the conflict in Ukraine. We're seeing Israel and Gaza almost every day on our TVs and on the internet and the same with Houthis and the Red Sea. That being said, when we're talking about comparing conflicts, what is a benchmark? What are we comparing it to? Are we comparing it to the Cold War? Are we comparing it to the, let's say, the beginning of the century? So it's important to know what you're comparing it to. And certainly I would agree that perhaps the calmest period was actually during the Cold War, during the standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union. And we didn't see as many conflicts. Yes, there was a war in Vietnam, there was a Iran-Iraq war, there was a Gulf War, but the frequency was much less than what we're seeing today. And I think one of the reasons why people might feel that we have many more conflicts today is because we get coverage. So we can actually participate in in these wars, in quotation mark, from our living rooms when watching TV. And this is a reason I think that gives us that sensation of unsafety. But it needs to be said that even when people were not so involved following wars, I mean, I I guess this trend has started with the Vietnam War, with being the first televised war. The wars that are happening are not all covered. So when we look at pure statistics and compare in terms of how many wars were taking place in 2005 versus now, we'll see that there is not a lot of fluctuation and the wars usually do not take place in terms of how we think that you have two armies fighting each other on the battlefield. Those are small internal wars 
And mostly, nobody pays a lot of attention to if those regions are not of a particular strategic interest. So I think uh, certainly we're in turbulent times, but I do not think that this is exceptional. And are there any common factors behind the current conflicts we're seeing? Well, I think there are certainly common factors, specifically if we're looking at Ukraine and then at Israel and the Red Sea. Firstly, at the turn of the century, everybody believed that there would be no near um, peer adversary warfare. And so the focus fell on, on these small internal conflicts, insurgencies, and we remember Iraq and the counterinsurgency that has taken place there. So the idea was that a future warfare will consist of such campaigns. And um, this is bringing me to the point that if we look at the Middle East and what is happening in the Middle East, the Red Sea attacks are having a direct connection to the Israel-Gaza war because it all forms part of the regional dynamics in the Middle East. We shall remember that Houthis are a part of Iranian proxy network. Whether Iran directly tells Houthis to attack the vessels in the Red Sea is another question. But there seems to be a power struggle in this region for a dominant power, which has been upset uh, many years ago. And so now with, with the Hamas attack on Israel and the subsequent war in Gaza, the region has been shaken because there are groups, non-state actors, violent non-state actors, and states, and sometimes their patron states, which see an opportunity to reshift the power balance in the Middle East. Now coming back to Ukraine, uh, how, how does this all connect to Ukraine? Well, Iran is a member of the BRICS, and certainly Russia has a lot of interests in the Middle East. And we, we, we do recall uh, Russian involvement in the Syrian civil war. Russia still has military bases there. So there are a lot of actors intersecting when it comes to these to conflicts, who is supporting whom. And again, here we see a picture that shows us on the one hand, we have the likes of Iran and Russia. And on the other hand, we have Israel, the United States, the United Kingdom. A similar picture we see in Ukraine, Western powers are supporting Ukraine and Iran, for one, is supporting Russia. Players like North Korea supporting Russia, Syria, Syria's Bashar al-Assad. Uh, perhaps not explicitly, but there are covered ways to do it. So it seems like a geopolitical struggle with these hotspots. And uh, from a Russian perspective, Russia is fighting an all-out war against Western dominance and against American hegemony. And this war includes Russia's allies, such as North Korea and such as Iran. So we can frame it as a bigger struggle against this dominance, because many Middle Eastern countries, such as Iran, who do not like Israel, and that is an understatement, perceive it as a U.S. proxy in the Middle East, and they don't want Israel to exist. And so this resistance to Israel the recent attacks on U.S. forces by the proxies that are supported by Iran and the Houthi attacks on the merchant vessels 
are all part of that grander scheme of a tectonic shift in geopolitics. Specifically on Ukraine, after two years of war, what's your assessment of how it's going and do you see any prospect for peace? If so, what steps need to be taken and by whom to get there? That's a great question and I guess many people will be wondering about uh, what the outcome of the war can be and what kind of series of victory the Western supporters have for Ukraine and what series of victory does Ukraine itself have. Because after two, two years of war, at the very beginning, the Russian military has become a laughingstock for performing so poorly. However, it has been a huge mistake to assume that the Russian military will continue performing the same way it did in the first months after the failed coup and um, after a failure to take the capital, which is Kiev. So what happened now is that we're seeing the Western patience does have its limits and not just the Western patience, but also the Western resources to supply Ukraine. We're also seeing cracks in Ukraine itself and Ukrainian political system with President Zelensky growing very unpopular, unlike General Valery Zelushny. And we're having this internal division. We're also having this new draft law that is going to polarize Ukrainian society. So we have all these problems. Of course, the problems in, in the U.S. Congress, um, the issues that the EU had to overcome in order to approve funding for Ukraine. So given this context, and of course, the wars in the Middle East, which we have just mentioned, are also influencing this because Western policymakers have to think about how to allocate help and whether they will be needed somewhere. In this time, Russia was not just adapting militarily um, in many ways, um, ranging from things like command and control and tactical operational adaptation, the adaptation of its military industrial complex despite the sanctions. Russia was pursuing very aggressive diplomacy to get other countries on board. And when, when the world saw that Russia was actually ostracized from the rest of the system, it wasn't the case. And somehow this geopolitical aspect has been missed. So what we're seeing right now is that the Russian economy has grown. Russia has adapted more than tactically, it has adapted strategically. And we're seeing on the battlefield now that the Ukrainian armed forces are in a very precarious situation because they're lacking artillery shells, they're lacking manpower. Then we have the issue with the Western aid and the fact that Western countries cannot outcompete Russia's military-industrial complex. And others such as North Korea and Iran, who are supporting Russia with artillery systems and ammunition, with drones, with technological know-how, specifically because the West is not operating in, in the wartime mode. So I, I, I think that given all these reasons, the prospects for Ukraine winning on the battlefield are very slim. Now, what are other options that can be considered here? The Russian side keeps stressing that Ukraine had its chance to freeze the conflict and to reach an agreement with the Russians back in March 2022 in Istanbul. 
there is an Istanbul communique which um, would outline the way forward. Ukraine didn't agree to that proposal. And so now the Russians are arguing that uh, they are ready to talk, but that will be on their own terms. And we also know that President Zelensky said that he wants to return to the borders of 1991, meaning that these two positions are incompatible at best, because for Ukraine to return to the borders of 91, meaning that Crimea would then be taken from under the Russian influence and return to Ukraine, that is, of course, not acceptable to Russia. And so I'm seeing here a, a very difficult situation for Western allies who know that Ukraine's survival, uh, and I would argue the survival of the entire country, depends on their help on the one hand. On the other hand, the current economic situation in, in many European countries, the disruption in the global supply chain, and of course other conflicts, and the fact that NATO realized that NATO needs to strengthen its members' militaries, that this defense spending has to increase. To what extent can NATO, under these conditions, continue supporting Ukraine? Therefore, there has to be some sort of a diplomatic position worked out, but it will not be on the same conditions, according to, to the Russians. They will not agree to the same conditions that they proposed in March 2022. And some even argue that they are not going to talk about any sort of settlement with Western countries because they say they will be tricked into, from their perspective, into the failed Minsk agreement again, and this will not resolve the conflict. Therefore, I think there can be pressure exerted by Western policymakers on the Ukrainian government, and we shall see how long um, President Zelensky will remain in power and whether there will be elections and maybe somebody else takes his place, how much influence they can exert to get both uh, parties to a negotiating table and use a so-called carrot and stick method to convince Ukraine to certain concessions and possibly promise in return accepting the current controlled territories by the Ukrainian government to join NATO and establish clear borders, which doesn't sound like a very ideal solution. But I think this is exactly what Russia has been waiting for, for the West to lose its political will. And it seems to be happening. And this is what Andrew Mack uh, wrote in, I believe, 1975. He said that why do, do democracies lose small wars? Because they run out of political will. And those actors who might even be weaker, but who know that they have to stay in those countries, they are holding the clock and they don't need to do anything else. And I think to a certain degree, it might apply here that the Western actors might lose political will. I do not see at this stage that Russia will be decided to bend because many have suggested that there will be a coup de grace in Russia if Russia tries to mobilize. It didn't happen. It, it did uh, shake the Russian society. There were projections about Russia running out of missiles. That didn't happen either. So somehow the, there was a completely skewed picture of uh, Russia's capabilities. And I think there was also no clear theory of victory, as I said at the very beginning. What was the aim? We have to understand that for Russia, Crimea has a very symbolic importance 
as well as a historic one. If we recall the Crimean War of four empires, the great game. So the Russians remember that still today. I, I guess not, not many amongst, um, except for Western historians, not many amongst the Western population will remember those wars. The Russians do. So for them, losing Crimea is not an option at all. And we have to also remember that neither Russia nor Ukraine formally declared war. That is important in a legal sense, because if the push came to show the Russians might declare war, that would mean that they will be able to mobilize the, all the population, not, not just do a partial mobilization. And this is in their, let's say, strategic culture, because historically, they are thinking that the attacks, as they did in the past, always came from the West. So they are the victim here. NATO is coming closer to their borders, and they have to protect their sovereignty. And this narrative is ingrained in many people's brains in Russia, that this is a part of the patriotic education. So I think given these tendencies, Russia will not back down from Ukraine and especially not from Crimea. And, and I think also what Russia is doing, and we, we talked a little bit about proxies, is trying to divert attention by activating some of those proxies, even through Iran, even through Syria, to distract the Western attention and to lower the importance of Ukraine on the agendas of Western policymakers. So I, I, I do not foresee any decisive victory for Russia either on the battlefield, at least for now. I think they will be trying to grind the Ukrainian forces down very slowly at the expense of not expanding their control of the territory to see how far the Western countries are willing to go. On Israel and Gaza, it's hard to see an end in sight. Where do we go from here and what role does the international community need to play? This is another very complicated conflict, um, specifically because Israel is pursuing two aims, which I would argue are somewhat mutually exclusive. The first one being the liberation of Israeli hostages, and the second one being the destruction of Hamas, which holds those Israeli hostages. So it is very difficult to conduct a military operation in Gaza because the Israeli military doesn't exactly know where the hostages are located. And in order to ensure that some hostages are returned, and we have seen that before, a ceasefire was enacted. Now, that, that is a trump card that Hamas has, those hostages. So by enacting the ceasefire, such groups can use the time to move and rearrange and adapt to what is happening. And the Israeli military then loses the initiative. Now, Netanyahu has rejected another ceasefire with Hamas and not accepting the conditions. And the problem is, it, it seems to be a divorce between the military and the political aims, because the military doesn't quite know what the objective is. 
The objective is not to take Gaza completely, and it has caused already a lot of destruction. And many have predicted that the war might be over by by the end of 2023. And it's not. A lot of people suffered as a consequence. And so this idea of mowing the grass and trying to destroy Hamas, even even if they physically destroy Hamas, what is going to happen? Uh, now not considering other groups that are supporting Hamas, such as um, Kataib Hezbollah in Lebanon, those who have suffered as a consequence of Israeli airstrikes, who have been neutral, might very well throw their support behind whatever is left of Hamas. So essentially, you corrupt the problem for several years, maybe for a decade, but you have not eradicated it. And so what is missing here is the idea of what is going to happen when Hamas Hamas's capabilities are essentially destroyed? What is going to happen with Gaza? And who is going to rule it? Who is going to pay for reparations? What is going to happen to those people? Because what happens is that there, there might be a power vacuum, a political power vacuum. And if nobody steps in, and that also has its caveats because of how legitimate the population will perceive that actor. There might be other groups trying to fight for power. What I mean is something similar to what we have seen in Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein. Suddenly, there were a lot of these small factions fighting against each other and fighting for power with the U.S. forces being on the ground and caught in this vicious civil war that spiraled out of control. And this is something that we should remember when we're looking at Gaza. And of course, what we should remember is that Israel has other enemies in the Middle East who might not have been pro-Hamas per se, but who are seeing an opportunity to join in to destroy Israel, to erase it from the map. And again, that's where Houthis and uh, Hezbollah and even Iran are coming into play. I do not think that Iran will do anything directly, but certainly it will use this opportunity to weaken Israel and to empower its proxies. So the situation is very complicated and how the international community, what role it can play, is another difficult question because of what is happening, let's say, with the UN and the tasks it had and the power it had to condemn, let's say, Israeli airstrikes or stop them. So we have seen that the UN somewhat failed, if I may say so, in stopping this violence. There has not been a resolution for where the Palestinians should be going in order to escape the strikes. There have been reports of UN workers actually providing support to Hamas which was scandalous, of course. So I think as an international organization, at least in, in that region, UN has um, suffered a very huge blow to its reputation. As far as for Western actors are concerned, again, are they perceived to pursue the legitimate interests of the regional players? And if not, can they do anything to resolve that conflict except for and the U.S. attempts to influence Netanyahu when it comes to the conduct of the, the, the military operation in Gaza. So I think that more than the external players 
who are trying to ensure that there is peace in the Middle East. I think Middle Eastern players, such as Qatar, such as Saudi Arabia, such as UAE, will have to step up their game in order to try and resolve the crisis, because that is in their backyard. And they are perceived differently from those who come from the outside and try to get involved and try to get a settlement and try to act as power brokers. So considering the Red Sea, many are concerned that events there could escalate and trigger more conflict in the region and even across the world. Do you think this is likely? As far as the Red Sea is concerned, I believe it could spill over across the Middle East. Of course, it is already causing a lot of problems. It's not just a regional conflict uh, of Houthis attacking merchant vessels. A lot of countries, including China, are suffering from this um, monetarily. And we are also seeing that these Houthi attacks are somehow a part of this broader approach to remove the Western powers from the Middle East and, of course, to find a resolution to the Israeli-Gaza conflict. Because we, we do remember that uh, Houthis started their attacks specifically because of the conflict. And they said that they would not tolerate any vessels going to Israel um, with aid. And attacks on U.S. forces, again, this is something that is not perceived as a legitimate presence by many non-state actors and their proxies in the Middle East. And so what are the options there and how it can be resolved? Can the Houthis be tamed? And we have seen that the airstrikes so far had a very, very limited impact. The airstrikes conducted by the United States in response to the attack and the death of U.S. servicemen didn't have the desired impact. Even if in rhetoric, it was said that this will be an ongoing operation. The problem here is that there are not many favorable options in military terms for Western powers to intervene without risking a greater spillover. And that's returning again to Iran. The war talks about uh, let us strike Iran because Iran is supporting all these groups. The problem is that Iran will not openly target U.S. troops, of course, but it would be the first time in history that there would be an attack on Iran. And I think Iran has had a, a quite a great experience of developing itself after the Iranian revolution in 79 and establishing its power despite all the sanctions. It has established very powerful allies. It's a part of BRICS. So depending on how the UK and, and the United States specifically continue their campaign against the Houthis and against the axis of resistance, uh, the Iranian proxies in the Middle East will determine whether there will be a spillover. But uh, looking historically at such campaigns, such as the campaign in Afghanistan, the 
campaign in Iraq, it risks getting the US or even the UK forces bogged down in another Middle Eastern quagmire, which of course nobody wants because we have seen how that ends. And so at, at this stage, I, I do not think that there is an immediate risk of spillover because I think policymakers understand that committing more troops to the Middle East is not going to be a solution. Quite the contrary, it will fuel more violence. Because what we have to understand, and back, I think, around 2001, uh, Al-Zawahiri from Al-Qaeda depicted the problem with the U.S. forces in, in the Middle East. He said, we have a problem with Shias. This is our near enemy. But Sunnis and Shias have a common enemy, and that's a far enemy, and, and that is the West. And so we will settle our difference with Shias after we expel those far enemies that are present in the Middle East. And I, I think we should understand that dynamic, that the Western presence is not desired there so much that groups who might be rivals in times of peace will put their efforts together to ensure a withdrawal of Western forces and closing of their bases across the Middle East. And I, I believe before the strike, the Iraqi government has urged the United States to withdraw its troops from Iraq. So I think that given all these things, we will see a continuation of those strikes. However, they will not stop the Houthis, but they will not necessarily lead to a spillover. Unless, of course, Iran is directly attacked by by one of, of, of Western countries, which I don't think will be the case. It's never happened in history. And I think that it will continue until there is some sort of resolution to what is happening now in Gaza. Again, that conflict will probably be going on for a longer time because such wars, and they're called small wars, they can take place for 30, 40 years normally. So we, we, we have to arm ourselves with patience and see what happens. Your comments on the West not being particularly welcome in some parts of the world leads neatly on to my next question. What is NATO's role in maintaining peace and how ready are countries such as the UK or USA to face future conflicts or get involved in events beyond their immediate borders? That's a very good question because um, we're seeing now the tendency of NATO to prepare for a different kind of conflict, uh, specifically for a war with Russia in the Baltics. So it seems to me that there is a shift in understanding of what NATO's purpose has been after the Cold War. Because after the Cold War, NATO was looking for a purpose for itself. It was there to protect the West from the evil empire, as uh, President Reagan would say. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, that threat ceased to exist. Now, that threat has returned. And so there is this understanding that specifically the European members of NATO have to ensure their own contribution and their own security and their own military readiness. And we're seeing it um, in countries like Germany and its military industry. Now, since the war in Ukraine, there has been an increase in production. And the new defense minister is also cautioning that we might need to contribute to the NATO mission in the Baltics because a war with Russia is, could take place 
as early as summer 2025. So I think for NATO, the purpose now is more of defending its eastern flank and reinforcing the eastern flank, getting involved with uh, new NATO members and trying to secure that region to prevent any steps into that direction from Russia. Also, I think that Russia is not necessarily going to attack a NATO member militarily, being well aware of Article 5, that Russia will be using different methods that it has been using for many years, and that is influence operations both in cyberspace and in physical space through different actors, most notably its intelligence services. But at least in NATO's mind, this is the imminent threat that NATO has to prepare for. And a lot of lessons are being learned from what is happening in Ukraine. So NATO is benefiting from this, seeing that now we need to think about the use of drones at all levels, especially at the tactical level. We're seeing the heavy use of artillery. We're seeing tanks. So we're seeing this mix of World War One and World War II tactics with very modern technology. And I think this is something that NATO will be digesting and trying to incorporate into its doctrines, while at the same time trying to bolster defense spending and increase its own capabilities, seeing how many resources are needed in a contemporary context against a peer adversary such as Russia. The other thing that NATO might be thinking about is the Chinese threat. And the United States has essentially named China as a threat number one to U.S. national security. It is not Russia. It is China. So we will be also closely watching to what extent NATO might get involved in protecting Taiwan in order to deter China from any military action. With fighting in many different regions and warnings around escalation, some feel we are at a precarious moment for global peace. Do you share these concerns? Well, I think that outruling war completely and establishing perpetual peace in a Kantian sense is a utopian dream. Because I am coming more from a tradition of Thucydides, who said that there is a triptych for the reasons why wars are waged. And there are three reasons, fear, honor, and interest. And I think that maybe there is a way to resolve specific wars. But I do not think that we will ever ensure that every single country lives in peace. Because every single country has its own history, has its own problems stemming from that history and from the culture. And we cannot just go and intervene everywhere. If we look at the African continent, there is constant violence. There are constant wars, which we don't hear much about in the media. Uh, We have a Latin America who could have thought that the violence would erupt in countries such as Ecuador right now with other Latin American countries standing by and essentially watching. And this is a huge problem with narco trafficking and the terrorist nexus that exists in Latin America. Colombia is still in the civil war. 
uh, despite the peace accord signed in 2016 with the FARC, is still not eradicated in many regions. And so the war is going. The intensity of that war has, of course, reduced in comparison to, say, the 90s and, and the early 2000s. But we have to accept that war might be a part of human nature. And sometimes, as Edward Lutwek argued, artificially freezing wars doesn't necessarily resolve the underlying causes. It only pauses the conflict to resume at a later stage and can be even more dangerous than if two sides were left to their own accords to fight it out on the battlefield and whoever wins establishes their respective order. And we have seen um, an example of that in the Sri Lankan civil war. It was a 30-year civil war in Sri Lanka. Multiple actors were involved. Uh, India was one of them trying to mediate peace. The international community was also very active in ensuring to regulate how the Sri Lankan government was using its military. And what happened every time is that mid-90s, the Sri Lankan army was very close to, to breaking the backbone of the Tamil Tigers. And then so much international pressure has been exerted on the Sri Lankan government that the ceasefire had been enacted. And a month later, the military, of course, lost the momentum. And a month later, the Tigers resumed their operations. So essentially that effort was for nothing and they lost a great opportunity. And another such ceasefire was brokered by Norway in 2002, again, to be violated by the Tamil Tigers within months. What I'm trying to say here is that freezing the conflict and intervening on behalf of one part might not always be the best solution, even if it means more violence in the immediate term. And um, I'm sure that some will question my ethical compass, but I'm thinking more from a utilitarian perspective. In the short term, lives will be lost, but at least the underlying causes of the war might help to find a resolution and create a more lasting peace than letting a war like that spin out of control and go on for 30 years. And I'm sure that in 30 years, compared to two to three years, many more lives will be lost and much more suffering will take place, essentially. And to come back to the Sri Lankan example, the war has ended in four years after Mahinda Rajapaksa took power in 2005, and uh, nobody could believe that he would actually bring an end to it. And it was a very violent end. It was, from a human rights perspective, an absolute catastrophe, but it ended. And the Tamil Tigers have been defeated, essentially. And the problem had been resolved for Sri Lanka for that moment. What came, uh, what became of Rajapaksa, we have seen, I, I believe, past year was all the corruption scandals. But that, that is not the point. The point is that the war had stopped and people stopped dying. What do you think the current situation shows us about the world today? And what do you think we should be doing differently if we want a more peaceful future? I think that we should put more 
emphasis on cooperation and public diplomacy. I do think that the military instrument is very blunt and it can have far-reaching consequences. And I think sometimes we also need to learn to talk to actors we don't necessarily like and make concessions or not go to specific regions where we know them there is a potential for a spillover. Again, the example of the 9-11, what was the aim of Al-Qaeda? And I said it before, it was the far enemy. These terrorist groups, they don't want to rule per se. There is a difference between insurgent groups and terrorist groups. Terrorist groups use terrorism in order to change specific policies. Insurgent groups use terrorism and other means more locally because they want to replace the existing political order with one of their own. And we have to be careful when we're calling specific groups or designating them as terrorists, such as Hamas, for instance, because that is well beyond terrorism. I am uh, arguing that, that those are insurgents and we have to recognize those problems before we start solving them. And we, we, we have to fully understand what the problem is before we try to select the means to address the problem. And this is why I, I think that it would be very important for the US and the UK and other Western countries to engage in a more closer dialogue with Middle Eastern power brokers in order to resolve the situation rather than try and use military force which is not going to deter those groups, but which can risk escalations, not because they are intended by the US or the UK, but because mistakes can happen. And if a wrong target is struck for one reason or another, the margin of error is very, very small. The same goes to places like Mali. The problem is that, of course, other players will try to step in where the West is losing the influence. And this is a part of the power game. So we have to carefully weigh our options. At what cost do we want that influence? Is this essential to our national security and our national survival? Or is it going to undermine both our interests abroad as well as our domestic security. And uh, it was an example in Mali where the Russian uh, private military company, the Wagner Group, um, which has become very famous in Western media in the past year, has been operating for a long time. The Russian aim there was to get rid of Western presence. And what could have happened? Uh, so France has withdrawn its forces. But uh, let's say France would have said, we will stay there at any cost. Another greater war might have broken out. And I'm not suggesting that we're supposed to make concessions like that. And I think every country should be weighing its options in terms of where it makes a strategic sense to deploy forces and where there is just too much at stake and the stability of those countries could suffer as well as the reputation and the stability of one's own country. And I think those are very difficult policy choices. I'm sure that there are teams of advisors working 
on these issues daily in every single government, thinking about those things. But maybe a less interventionist way might make it easier to work with countries that we do, do not necessarily like. Thank you, Marina. It's been so interesting to hear your insights to some of the current conflicts in the world today, how things might develop in the coming months and years, and also your call for the world to place greater emphasis on cooperation and public diplomacy. Thank you very much for joining us today. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.